I'm excited to jump back into the book of Mark. I loved the series that, uh, that we did, but I am so excited to jump back into Mark. Um, if you haven't, weren't with us for the first half of Mark, um, out on the table, outside in the little lobby, there are these little scripture journals. So if you've forgotten about these, I encourage you to go and dig them up if you have one. Um, if you don't have one or if you've lost yours, we have extras. Um, so this is just a little journal that's just basically got the scriptures on one side and blank spaces on the other, and it's easy for you to follow along with to keep your own notes um, and just to track with us as we go through this book. So if you don't have one, um, there's some right out on the table in the lobby. But we're in Mark 8, starting in verse 1. So let me go ahead and read that. We're going to go all the way to verse 21. It says, In those days, when again a crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he calls his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many... Baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Well, today we wrap up part one of the book of Mark. I, I, I would have liked to have wrapped this part up before we did the last series, but scheduling just didn't work out that way. But I'm actually glad that God led us to this text on this day because it's actually going to serve as a good reminder and overview of part one of the book of Mark. And so what do I mean by part one of the book of Mark? Well, we're going to talk about this much more next week, but next week we're going to enter into what is widely considered the beginning of part two of the book of Mark, that the book of Mark is nicely laid out in two different sections with Mark 8.29, Peter's confession of Christ, serving as the divider for the book of Mark. And so today, at the beginning of chapter 8, we're going to see the build-up to that conversation. It's going to reach a crescendo today with just how much the disciples aren't getting it. And then next week, it's going to be like, 
boom, okay, the floodgates are going to open and we're going to see a whole new um, interaction with Jesus and the disciples. So at the beginning of Mark chapter 8, we see the buildup to that important conversation that we'll talk about next week. So don't miss next week uh, because it's a very important week and story moment in the book of Mark. It's very important. So if you're going to miss any week, don't let it be uh, next week. But one interesting thing to note about this section of Mark, and I love this, um, is that Mark is intentionally repeating themes in this section of the gospel. So here's what I mean by that. There's going to be a slide on the screen, and I want to show you something interesting that's happening um, in the book of Mark. Uh, There it is. Okay. So in this section of the book of Mark, we get the beginning of a second cycle of repeated themes. So in Mark 6.30, you have the feeding of the 5,000. Today in Mark 8.1, you're going to have feeding of the 4,000. In Mark 6.45, you have a boat trip. Mark 8.10, you have a boat trip. Um, in Mark 7, 1 through 23, you have a confrontation with the Pharisees. And today, uh, in Mark 8, 11 through 13, you have a confrontation with the Pharisees. Mark 7, 24, a conversation about bread. Mark 8, 14, a conversation about bread. Mark 7, 31, you have a miraculous healing with the deaf and mute man. And then next week, Mark 8, 22, you have the healing of the blind man. And then Mark 7, 37, you have the Syrophoenician woman and her confession on who Jesus is. And then next week in Mark 8, 27, you have the confession of Peter. So at minimum, the nerd in me just goes, whoa, that's cool, right? But it's more than that, right? Because every verse, every um, phrase is intentional in scripture. And even more than that, even the way that it's structured and what's near each other and why something comes before or after, these repeated cycles, right? Everything is intentional in Scripture. And so Mark wants to show us, one, that there is a rhythm that Jesus is doing, right? He's doing something intentional here. But I think even more than that, he's showing us that Jesus says nothing by accident. He has a providential plan, that he has a purpose to everything that he does. And we see in these two cycles that he has a rhythm. And both of these cycles begin with Jesus revealing his ultimate mission. Both of these stories, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, begin with compassion. His mission is driven by compassion, right? And in that, what he does in both of those feedings reveals who he is and what his plan is. And both of these cycles end with a confession about that plan, about that identity. And so all of this is intentional. So with that said, let's jump into Mark chapter 8. Here at the feeding of the 4,000, much like the feeding of the 5,000, the first thing that we see, as I mentioned, is the compassion of Jesus. Look at verse 2. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. So in Mark 6, at the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus has compassion on the crowd, not because they were hungry, but because they were what? They were sheep without a shepherd, right? Remembering Ezekiel 34, where God declares that there is one coming that will gather the sheep of Israel, and that shepherd will feed them. He will bind them up. He will gather the scattered, but here he has compassion for their physical needs. They have nothing to eat. So I, th- I just think that's interesting. I mean, think about it. The text says that they had been with him for three days. The Jewish folks in Mark 6 had only been with him for one day. These people had been with him for three days. I mean, put yourself there, right? Three days. They had put their own desires and need for food aside 
for three days just so they could hear him teach, just so they could see him. I mean, that kind of devotion, that's foreign to me. That's foreign to, I think, modern Christianity. Now, I'm not recommending that you go for three days without food just to prove a point, but I do want to recognize two things. First, these people were committed. They were committed to learning from Jesus above anything else. And second, Jesus recognizes that commitment. He recognizes that commitment, and he has compassion on them. He meets them in the midst of their need. And God will do the same for us. Now, what we think we need and what God knows that we need may be two different things, right? What we think we need and what God knows that we need. But how many of you have a story of how when you were in need, it seemed like there was nothing you could do. You needed help. And then it seemed like out of nowhere, God provided in the midst of that need. How many of you have a story like that? Yeah, a lot of us do. That he's the sovereign king, right? He has the authority to take away, but I think sometimes we forget he also has the authority to give. He has the authority to give. And both of them result and have the same, prop, uh, same result, right? There are times when God will withhold things, withhold blessings, so that we will see the true blessing himself. And then there are times that he will give blessings so that we will see the true blessing himself. He will give, he will take away, and both of those end with us seeing his glory, that our worship would be full. And he looks at this crowd, this crowd that is committed to him. They're listening to him him teach, and he provides for their needs out of compassion. And so the structure of this story, it's similar to the feeding of the 5,000, but it has some distinct differences. And this is important. And this is kind of a small thing because I don't even know if many of you would know this, but there are some critical scholars out there who will say that this is just the same story as the feeding of the 5,000, that Mark just repeated himself here. So this is worth mentioning, that there are some important differences. There are obviously 5,000 men compared to 4,000, five loaves and two fish compared to seven loaves and, two, and a few small fish. One day in the wilderness versus three days in the wilderness. Twelve basketfuls and seven basketfuls of leftovers, right? One is mostly Jews, and we'll talk about this later, and then one is mostly Gentiles. So there are some distinct differences. But here's what's interesting. I was reading about this. The reason that some critical scholars think that this is a repeat story is because they don't believe the disciples are that dumb. That's really their reasoning. They, they don't believe that the disciples just could not get it, right? Like, he's already done this once. Why are you asking how you're going to feed all these people? He's already done it. He's going to do it again. They just don't get it. And so they're like, well, surely, right, this is a repeat story because surely they would not have gotten it a second time. And what these critical scholars realize is they are underestimating humanity's idiocy. Um, because that's actually the point of the story, is that they don't get it. (laughs) The disciples are still oblivious to what Jesus is doing, and we learn an important lesson here. Simply witnessing a miracle is not enough to produce faith. Simply witnessing a miracle is not enough to produce faith. If If it was, the whole world would believe in Jesus. I would be willing to bet, if you're like me, that some of some of us in here have played the God, if you would just, then I would. You ever played that game with God? 
God, if you would just do this, if you would just provide this, then I will do this. Then I'll believe in you. Right? I remember one time I was, uh, I was pitching in a baseball game in high school. You're about to find out how good I was. Um, this guy came up to the plate. He was the best player in the district. He went on to play in Major League Baseball. He came up. The bases were loaded. And I prayed. I was a new believer. And I prayed, God, if you would just not allow him to hit a grand slam, then I'll do whatever you want. This is right before, like, he's walking up to the, to the batter's box. And what do you think happened? He hit a grand slam, right? And not only did he hit a grand slam, but they found the ball on the, t- on the green of the first hole of the golf course that was across the street. It was gone. And I never pitched the rest of the season. Like, they, they never let me pitch again. The God, if you would just game is a dangerous game because in that statement, you are telling God that there are parameters to your faithfulness. That faithfulness is dependent on what he can provide and not on who he actually is. And so basing your faith on miracles is not enough. You know who demands a sign in Scripture? The Pharisees. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. It says he sighed and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no one, no sign will be given to this generation. And if you really think about it, there really isn't anyone in the New Testament that questions that the miracles of Jesus actually happened. I was thinking about this. You know, Thomas, he, he doubts for a moment about the pierced hands. Um, but other than that, there really isn't anyone who doubts that if the miracles of Jesus actually happened, but what they do question is the authority from which the miracles come from, right? So no one doubts that the miracles actually happened. What was questioned was the authority behind the miracles. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey? Why does he speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? So in the case of the disciples, they have seen Jesus feed thousands of people. They have seen him walk on water. They've seen him give hearing to the deaf and sight to the blind. They have seen some, him raise someone from the dead. And at this moment, the disciples still don't understand the miracles because they don't understand the authority behind the miracles because they lack the greatest miracle of all, the miracle of faith. Their eyes their ears have not been opened. So if, if that's you, if, if you are a person who would say, man, if I could just see God do a miracle, then I would believe. Right? If, I would, if I could just see God do this, then I would follow him. Then I would graciously say to you, you have missed the entire point of Scripture. I would say, look around. You are surrounded in this room by people who were once blinded by this world and God has opened their eyes. That is a miracle. You are surrounded by people who once walked in their sin and shame and God has brought them to freedom and joy. That's a miracle. You're surrounded by people who were once dead in their sin and now they are alive by the blood of Christ. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. Then understand When Jesus saves you, when he brings you from death to life, that is a miracle because only God can do that. He's the only one. 
But the miracle is not an end in itself, right? Like, it just doesn't stop there. The miracle continues. The miracle leads us to what? To holiness. That God begins to transform our lives, to change us from the inside out. That he transforms our desires. Our desires become his desires. Our affections shift from chasing the things of this world to pursuing his glory and his purposes. And, and here's the reality. There are worse things than eyes that can't physically see. There are worse things than ears that can't hear. A good question to help examine where, you at, where you're at with all this is to ask yourself, if Jesus could in a moment remove your suffering from you, right? So, so maybe that's an actual physical ailment, your eyes, your ears, your, your feet. Maybe it's migraines, if you get migraines. Maybe it's circumstances in your family or in your work. But if Jesus could, in a moment, remove that suffering or fix that circumstance, but left you in your sin, would that be enough for you? I mean, we know the right answer is no, right? But, man, I wonder how many of us would be tempted to take that deal. Because I think about, for me, man, if I could have my parents back, There are things that I wish I could change. It's tempting. But to be left in my sin? Really think about that. No. No way. The miracle is not greater than the miracle maker. The main issue in this age until Jesus comes back is that we glorify him with every part of our lives and not spend time begging for miracles while missing the miracle maker. Should we pray for physical healing? Healing? Absolutely. He's got the power. He can do it. He's got all authority. But our faith is not dependent on the miracles. Our faith is given by God and is dependent and sustained by God. That we don't put our salvation and hope in the healings of this life and on the fixing of circumstances. What's eternally more important is your heart and your soul. All that matters is has he given you eyes to see? Has he given you ears to hear? Do you see your sin? Like, legitimately, do you, do you see your sin? And do you see his grace and how he is more than sufficient? I think the reality is most people today, they want a life coach rather than a Lord. It's interesting, in, in this, I'll say this story and then I'll, I'll move on. But in John 5, we meet a, uh, a guy at the pool of Bethesda. You know this story? This man had been paralyzed for 38 years. Every day he would go and sit by this pool, and there was a hot spring that created this pool. And so it was believed that if you were the first one in the pool when the bubbles came up, then you would be healed. So every day people would hang out around this pool, people with all sorts of ailments, and they would try to get into the pool, and the belief was whoever's the first one in the pool was going to be healed. So this guy, he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and he tells Jesus, hey, I, I've got no one to pick me up and put me in the pool. And Jesus goes on to say, basically, I'm summarizing here, you don't need a pool, you've got me. And Jesus heals this guy. And later on, he runs into this man at the temple, and he says, see, you are well. Sin no more, so that nothing else may happen to you. And that's always an interesting, been an interesting phrase to me. He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, well, what could be worse than being paralyzed for 38 years? How could things possibly get worse for this guy? Because the reality is, eternal condemnation 
is the absolute worst thing that could happen to any person. And he's saying this guy, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. That separation from God is worse than any circumstances you may have in this life. For the disciples, if their eyes had been opened, they would have seen the significance of this moment the significance of the feeding of the 4,000, and what it says about the identity of Jesus. This miracle is taking place in Gentile territory. And so let's not forget what happened right before this feeding. It's been several weeks since we were last in the book of Mark, but this story comes on the heels of the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Remember this woman, right, who comes to Jesus. Her daughter has a demon, and she begs Jesus, hey, would you please heal my Daughter, and Jesus tells her, hey, it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. Dogs, a common name for Gentiles. And she responds to him, and she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And in that moment, she shows that she understands what no one else to this point has understood. She understands that Jesus, the Messiah, has not only come for the Jewish people, but he's also come for the Gentiles. She sees him. She hears him. And Mark is putting these two stories near each other to show that the feeding of the 4,000 is further proof that Jesus has come for the Gentiles, that Mark has time and time again been showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, that Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I'm not sure how much the disciples understood, but To this point, man, they seem clueless, okay? In verse 14, Jesus is going to present an object lesson, okay? He grabs a loaf of bread, and he wants to make a point. They had just got done arguing with the Pharisees, and so he says in verse 15, Watch out, beware of the leaven and of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What does Jesus mean by that? What does he mean by leaven? Well, I had to do a lot of study on this this week. Because I'm not much of a bread maker. Surprise. Um, Danny Kirchmeyer, we've got a couple bread makers uh, in our congregation, but Danny Kirchmeyer or a couple others could probably explain to you exactly what leaven does. But as far as I can tell, leaven is like yeast. It looks like tiny grains of sand, and it goes all throughout the bread, and it makes the bread rise. So leaven in Scripture was often negatively used in regards to the pervasive influence of bad company. Um, bad character, or even bad teaching, that it works its way through the dough and it spreads. Okay, Just a little bit goes a long way in a bad direction. So the warning here is to beware, because the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is going to work through the disciples and influence. Well, influence how? Mark doesn't exactly tell us. He leaves it open-ended. Matthew tells us in his account that it's the leaven of their teaching. Luke tells us in his account that it's the leaven of their hypocrisy. And and here's the deal about this whole thing that's fascinating. The the Pharisees and Herod, you typically didn't link those two groups together. I mean, Herod wanted to influence culture, and the Pharisees wanted culture to submit to God's law. I mean, these two did not agree on anything at all. So why mention both of them here? Because they have one thing in common. They want to destroy Jesus. If you remember in Mark 3, 6, it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. 
that these two groups have united. These two groups that have historically disagreed on everything, they have united to oppose Jesus. So when he says, beware of their leaven, this, this yeast from the Pharisees and Herod, I think he's saying, beware of this attitude of unbelief. Beware of this unfaithfulness. This need for a sign. That leaven, disciples, will ruin you. The Pharisees and Herod refused to see the authority behind the miracles. They were committed to their unbelief. They don't understand who Jesus is. The Pharisees, who knew the law better than anyone, anyone else, were, think about this, they were unable to see that the law points to Jesus. It's right in front of them. They did not have eyes to see. They don't get it. And the disciples make very clear in the next few verses that they don't get, get it either. It's almost comical, right? You picture them nodding along as Jesus talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, right? And then all of a sudden, they begin talking amongst themselves. It says they begin discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> they start talking about the physical bread, and they completely miss the point. Peter, I thought you brought the bread. Man, I thought Andrew was grabbing it. Oh, my goodness. They just don't get it. They're worried. Think about this. They're worried about bread, and they have just seen Jesus feed thousands of people. After, probably recently, they saw Jesus feed 5,000 plus people. Of all the issues that the disciples had to worry about, bread was not one of them, okay? You've got the only guy in the world that can make bread just appear. What's their problem? Unbelief. Unbelief. I remember Mark 6.50, after he feeds the 5,000. When he's walking on water, right? And they see him, and it says in verse 50, says, For they saw, saw him, and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, and do not be afraid. And they got, he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. They don't understand what the Syrophoenician woman does. That the one who just fed thousands is the bread of life. And so he, Jesus goes on to ask him several questions. It's, it's really interesting. It says, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? They don't understand about the loaves. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? And then he goes on to remind them how many loaves they had left over after each of these feedings. He asks them about the 5,000, and they say 12. He asks them about the 4,000, and they say 7. Then he ends with saying, do you not yet understand? He basically says, why in the world are you talking about bread right now? Do you not see who I am? Do you not understand what I've come to do? That with the, the 5,000, the 12 basketfuls of leftovers symbolizes the 12 tribes of Israel. And here, with the seven, it's believed, and, and I agree with them, um, that it represents the seven Gentile nations, right? So the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, but not the Mosquito Bites. It's an old seminary joke. I just felt like I had to, I had to do that. Um, I had a professor do it. Okay, but the, the seven Gentile nations, um, they still have not connected the dots. And if you'll notice something else, this is interesting too, Mark sandwiches this moment in between two miracles, okay? At the end of chapter 7, he heals a deaf and mute man, and then you get the feeding of the 4,000, and right after this moment, he will heal a blind man. We'll talk about that next week. And right in the middle, 
he asked his disciples, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? What's the point? Who healed? Who opened their eyes? Jesus. Who opened their ears? Jesus. That he gives us spiritual eyes and spiritual ears to see and to hear. The miracle of having spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, is greater than any miracle, any changing of circumstances that God could ever give us. It's greater than being healed of that cancer, greater than any amount of money, greater of that circumstance being resolved to the perfect way that you want it to be resolved, than the need of the miracle of hearing and seeing. That's our greatest need, right? Because so many of us, and we know the stories of the Bible, you, you know the story of Abraham, the story of Noah and the ark, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Jonah, David, and Goliath. You believe, that all that, you believe that all that happened, you believe that he parted the Red Sea. You believe that God did those things. But we are so quick to doubt God's work today. We are so quick to doubt. We're so quick to get distracted. We're so quick to chase after the things that leave us empty. We drink in sand and wondering why we're still, wonder why we're still thirsty. That the church needs to gather and to ask God, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. We're so quick to forget his providence in our lives. How many times have you come on the other end of suffering and gone, I see why God was doing that? How many times? And then the next time suffering comes, why are you doing this, God? And we get to the other end of that. God, I see what you were doing. And over time, time and time again, God is reminding, reminding us, I'm faithful, I'm faithful, I'm faithful. There's a cynic in us that wants to ignite a flame of doubt in us. God, we just have one loaf. What are we going to do? Meanwhile, the loaf creator is sitting in the boat with us, and we don't see him. It's no different than saying, well, I sinned again. I guess I'm the worst person in the world, and God will never love me. Meanwhile, the sin forgiver, the promiser, the one that receives you in grace, the one that chases after you and grabs you, he's going, I'm right here. I've been chasing you this entire time, and now I've grabbed you. And we sin again, we forget his grace. But we can trust him. And we can trust him not only because you know what he's done, that's true. We know what he's done, and that helps us trust him in the future. And, and, and we can trust him not only because we know what he's going to do in the future, we know that he's not going to change in the future, but we can trust him because we know who he is. We know who he is. Look, the disciples don't fully trust him yet because they don't see him. They don't really know him. Look, this story is not complicated. I could have been done with it in 10 minutes, and that would have been fine, right? There are... I mean, in the Old Testament, don't amen that. <laughs> Come on now. Like, the Old Testament, there, there's lots of, um, I don't know who that was, but I'm going to find out. Um, in the Old Testament, there's lots of interpretive things that you have to, to work through. In, in the New Testament, in the epistles, uh, specifically, there's some dense logic, and you have to look at the argument and see how it all fits together. But stories like this in the gospel, sometimes we just overcomplicate them. Mark wants to show us who Jesus is in this story. He wants to show his, his providence, that this is no accident that this is happening in Gentile territory. All the way back to Genesis 12, God has been talking about this, right? And he's compassionate with the Jewish people. He's compassionate with the Gentiles. 
He's going to be compassionate with you in your need. He's the one that can create out of nothing. The appearance of the abundance of bread is not that complicated when you consider that it was the word of God, Jesus, in Genesis 1, who created the entire world. So if he can create a universe, why is it crazy to think that he can create some bread? It's not that complicated. The question for the disciples, the question for us, is do you see him? Do you see who he actually is? Or have you made up some assumptions about him? Do you really see who he is? That we would humble ourselves and ask God to give us eyes that see, because he's the only one that can give it. Ears that hear. That we would pray that the Spirit would show us the miracle that he's done with us, the miracle of salvation. And that we would not waste our lives chasing after empty wells that will never satisfy us. But that we would see the sovereign king, that sovereign king that has reached into our grave called our name, and made our lifeless bodies alive. Miracle. And that's why we're here. That's why we worship. And that's why we go to the world, to the Gentiles.